Welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom here in a snowy Jerusalem. Welcome to episode 136 of the Bicom podcasts. And I would say this is the seventh podcast in our latest election series. We've, we've spoken to a couple of excellent analysts and have spoken, I've spoken to representatives now from the Likud, Yeshatid, New Hope and the Joint List. And today I'm very excited to be talking to perhaps the party of the moment, the potential kingmakers in this elections. And I'm talking about Naftali Bennett's Yamina party. And welcome to Jeremy Saltman, who is a candidate for Yamina. Jeremy, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So if we can start perhaps from, for the UK audience that may not know you, could you just briefly introduce yourself and tell us how you got into uh, to politics? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, my name is Jeremy Salton, married to Cheryl, father to Mimi, Mikey, uh, Gabby, and Ellie. Uh, I live in Mivasir Sion. Originally, I was born in uh, Skokie, just outside of Chicago, Illinois. I made Aliyah uh, with my family. It was a week before sixth grade. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was very hard going through the absorption process as a preteen and a teenager, but I, uh, I served in uh, the Israeli army. When I got out, I worked with uh, NESTO, which uh, stands for New English Speaking Tino Lean. So I worked with immigrants from Anglo uh, families in indirect uh, education with the youth group. Uh, after that, I ended up taking a, a series of different positions working within politics, both on the national and on the uh, local level. I said, I, I live here in Mivasir Tzion. Mivasir Tzion, you, you guys might've heard of it. It has the largest absorption center in all of the state of Israel, really the flagship of the Jewish agency. Until recently, 1,300 slots. A lot of people have come uh, through uh, Israel's doors have uh, come right through here. And I uh, am serving already my second term as the acting chairman of the committee within the local city council. Uh, so I have a lot of, uh, a lot of um, record dealing with that. I've worked with various politicians over the years. Um, from 2012, I've been working with Naftali Bennett. I've been heading his English outreach program. Uh, I've been dealing with all the various uh, complaints, if you will, or petitions or uh, questions, comments, or requests for help that have come in. Um, so, so again, my background coming in is really uh, an immigrant uh, from an English-speaking nation uh, living here in Israel and then working on behalf of uh, those who uh, really shared my experience. So if we can just dive in straight into the uh, into the hard politics. And as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a potential role of Yamina to be the uh, the king's makers or making the decision of whether to go with the in, in the pro-Netanyahu camp or the anti-Netanyahu camp. So my first question, I suppose, is the, is the big one. Will you join a Netanyahu government? Well, uh, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners and viewers know, there are four candidates running for prime minister. There's, of course, uh, the incumbent, Netanyahu, and there are three challengers. And Aftali Bennett is one of those three challengers. And what we're trying to do is, is replace him. And there's, of course, a three-phase process in order to go ahead and do so. The first part is the Knesset election, the election which we choose our legislative body, not our executive. And we, we're saying very clearly, um, we're running for prime minister. When it comes to the second phase, that's the president's residence, in terms of who you're going to recommend. And your question is, what happens if Bennett does not get uh, a majority of the votes or uh, is one of the top players? And we've said that regardless of the amount of seats we get, we will recommend, Yamina will recommend Naftali Bennett for prime minister in the president's residence. 
That is our commitment. In terms of what happens in the third phase, which is following the horse trading of coalition agreements, the vote of confidence within the parliament to actually go ahead and create the new government. We're saying that what we're gonna do is we're gonna see exactly what the election results are, where the nominations um, ended up going in the president's residence, and we'll make a decision at that time. I know for many people, they're upset, they wanna know right now, but I really feel, and I feel many people, if they've paid attention to Israeli politics, especially over the last two years, will know this, that if you really think you know what is going to happen before the elections in terms of what the actual coalition will look like, you are either naive or a liar. So, so we just frankly do not believe all these parties that are saying they're for BB, they're against BB. Just from the last election, we saw parties who said they were with BB and didn't end up in his coalition. We saw people say they were not going to go with BB and then end up in his coalition. So we're, we're just trying to do the thing that may, maybe, you know, people are jaded, but we're just trying to be honest. <laughs> Even though, um, you know, people want to put us into a corner, we're saying very much so. In the first phase, we're running for prime minister. And the second phase, we will nominate Naftali Bennett. And in the third phase, we'll see where the chips fall and we'll make a decision based on what's best for the Jewish people and the Israeli nation at that time. That's very clear. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. That's very, very interesting as well. Um, let's let's work on a scenario that you and your party do incredibly well and that you are part of the uh, the coalition that is forming forming the next government. Um, do you think you would uh, you would reach out to the uh, to the Zionist left, to uh, the Labour Party and Meretz and include them in your coalition? Well, there are two criteria that uh, we're asking everyone to to meet in order to be a partner for coalition talks, right? It, it also, you, you know how coalition talks start, you don't know how they end. But in terms of inviting people to the table, in terms of potential partners, there, there are two, two conditions that we're putting up. The first is they need to accept Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. That's how we define Israel. That's how I, I believe every Zionist defines Israel. And anyone that, that goes ahead and wants to sit with us, they must accept Israel and view Israel as we do as, as a state, as a nation. And the second criteria is that we need to understand that Corona is a real big issue. And if we wanna be able to combat both COVID from a uh, health issue, but also from an economic issue, we're gonna to have to take all of those issues that we disagree with and put them on the side. If we don't go ahead and do that, we're just not gonna be able to form a government. We're in a situation where we're in our fourth um, election in less than two years. It's crazy, but that's what happens when we have these elections based on what you mentioned, left, right. What we need to do is take that stuff out of the equation. Of course, you know, values matter, and that's why you need to accept Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. But the guidelines of the next coalition are going to be combating COVID, both from, an, from a health perspective as well as an economic one. So I'll come back uh, a little, in a little bit to ask you more specifically about uh, Corona and how you would how you propose to deal with it. Um, let's just go back to today because the polls today um, are actually suggesting that even even with uh, um, the Yamina Party joining a a Likud led government, they still don't have enough to get over the uh, to get over the crucial 61. What do you make of the current polls and your slightly downward trajectory? So. Uh... You know, what, what we've seen in, you know, for instance, this week, but also last week and the week before, is things are pretty much steady. Um, in every single poll that's come out since we've submitted the candidate list, uh, which was ready three weeks ago, 
we've had a low of 10 and a high of 13. This has happened now in three consecutive weeks. If we look at the other parties, their low and high is also more or less within three seats of each other. We haven't really seen a very, very, very big movement with anybody. So you might catch on TV uh, one time where we, we're up, one when we're down, but if we're talking about 10 to 13 seats, this is not a very, very big difference uh, within the big scheme of things. Obviously for us to be able to form the government, we need more mandates. And that's why we're out here campaigning and trying to get more. Um, we think that that area of about 15, 16, if we're able to get to that mark, that's enough to be able to form the next government. But you're correct. When you look at it right now, no one can form a government. Netanyahu does not have the ability to do it. Uh, the other candidates, both Saar and Lapid, do not have an ability to do it. And what makes us special compared to all the other parties, we're the only party that is not boycotting any of the key players. And we are the only party that is not being boycotted by the key players. Just, you know, so that people realize what's going on here. We have, you know, Lieberman who won't sit with the Haredim, right? The ultra-Orthodox parties who won't sit with Lapid, who won't sit with the Likud, who won't sit with Saar, who won't sit with, with uh, Meretz, who won't sit with Smotrich, who won't sit with, um, you know, the Labor Party. So you're in a situation where everyone is boycotting everybody. And seriously, um, you know, if everyone continues with the commitments that they have right now and, and decide to give in to the pressure of predicting the future of without knowing the election results, what kind of government they're gonna find themselves in as opposed to doing what we're doing and saying, we're only gonna to commit to what we're doing in the president's residence because that we can actually control. So we'll have a fifth election. <laughs> I mean, that's what the polls are showing us. So we're hoping that if we get enough strength, we'll be able to form the coalition. If we're not able to form the coalition, at least be able to create a situation in which we have a government which is actually going to be uh, formed and actually deal with the crisis that we're dealing with right now, which is, of course, COVID on both the health and economic levels. So you, thank you. Jimmy, you just mentioned uh, uh, Batalid Smotrich, um, who was obviously a former member of your, uh, of your, of your party, of your, of your camp. Not, not of our party, uh, but of our faction. <laughs> Of a, of a faction, of a union faction, and obviously now he's gone. He's he's gone further to the right to join with uh, what's my your deep Jewish power. What do you make of that uh, of that technical union between Smotrich and uh, Ben Gvir? Look, uh, Smotrich is free to to go ahead and and make his own decisions. He decided that he wanted to go ahead and uh, link up not just with Otsma but also with Noam. And uh, I, I'll tell you, that's not my cup of tea. And sorry to interrupt. Do you, do you see them? Do you, do you see them as a? Do you see them as a legitimate partner potentially? I, I said very clearly. Anybody who is actually able to both say that they accept Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, as well as someone who's willing to put all of the right-left arguments on the side and deal with COVID, they'll be a partner. Now, are you asking me if if Otsmar Noam? Uh, fill that criteria, that, that's for, for us to be able to determine after speaking with them. Right now, when I'm looking at what they're saying, um, they're doing everything possible to avoid and evade a lot of uh, those issues. They're only campaigning on right-wing issues. They're only talking about a right-wing government. And uh, I, I think most uh, people are well aware of, uh, of Ben Gvir's uh, previous affiliation, uh, with uh, with Kahana and the fact that Kahana 
had an opposition to, to democracy. So again, we would have to be able to see if they themselves feel that they live up to the standards. And uh, I, I would say the same thing about any other one of the parties that, that is running within uh, this election. We have this also uh, on the left side of the spectrum. Uh, we just recently had number seven on the labor list be disqualified by the Central Elections Committee for not accepting Israel as a Jewish and democratic state and previous things um, that she did. For whatever reason, uh, of course, the Supreme Court is going to hear her appeal, and we don't know yet it's still pending, but the Central Elections Committee did decide that she can't run. The determination that was made by the Central Elections Committee is that Ben Gvir um, does accept Israel's Jewish and Democratic state, and that's why they are allowing his candidacy, and they did not disqualify him. But like I said, when, when it comes down to the um, sitting in a coalition with us, what we're going to do is, is go ahead and look a little bit more than, let's say, what the criteria of the law is, <laughs> okay, but, but have a serious discussion with the people who want to go ahead and, and sit down and join us in the fight of being able to defeat COVID once and for all. Um, and talking about other parties and kind of where do you see, where do you see the uh, product differentiation between you and Gidon Saar's New Hope, both of you kind of are, are principled right-wing um, non-Netanyahu. Non um, obviously, you have got the ambiguity that you'll, you will at your discretion decide whether you are for or against him. But apart from the Netanyahu issue, where else is the distinction between your, your, your principles and policies and Gidon Saar's? Well, again, I would say that, once again, we're running for prime minister, and we hope to replace Netanyahu. And we think that with all the good things he's done, and he's done a lot of good things for the state of Israel, he has failed in terms of the leadership test when it comes to the coronavirus. And we do think that we need to replace him because he's not the right person to lead Israel. Now, the difference between us and Gidon Saar is very simple. In this government, which was the worst government that, that I can tell you that, that at least I remember, I can't talk about years from before I was born, but certainly since I made Aliyah and even before I made Aliyah, I do not remember any coalition that was as bad as this one. And, and Gidon Saar was part of it. In fact, eight of the 10 MKs uh, in terms of the top 10 of his Knesset list were all ministers or committee chairmen or me senior members of this coalition that was such a failure. Naftali Bennett was the one who was the true opposition leader, even if not in name, but in practice, in terms of putting together a shadow Corona cabinet. Now that's something that I'm sure a lot of British people can uh, go ahead and connect to that idea of actually putting plans on the table actually putting pen to paper. Naftali literally wrote the book on how to combat the coronavirus and be able to defeat it. He did that based on what happened in his term as defense minister during the first lockdown, which was a lot more successful than the second and third one. So what's the difference between us and Saar? Saar is the new Benny Gantz. He is saying that he will not sit with Netanyahu. Well, I remember Amir Peretz and his mustache. I remember uh, Orly Levy's pledge. I remember Benny Gantz's pledge. I remember Gabi Ashkenazi's pledge. I remember Hauser and Hendel, okay, two members that are now part of Gidon Sar's party himself, promising from every interview that they will not sit with Netanyahu no matter what. And in fact, it was Hauser that penned the piece of legislation that changed through constitutional law the ability in August for this coalition government to last even longer. So, you know, what's the difference between us and, and Gidon Saar? Over the last six months, 
we've been the true opposition to Netanyahu. We have an actually plan on the tape, an actual plan on the table of what to do with Corona, both from a health perspective and an economic perspective. And Gidon Saar, until two months ago, along with his entire list, were senior members of this coalition government that was a complete failure. And he voted with them. <laughs> you know, it's not like he voted against or whatever. He voted with them on all, all these crucial votes. And he saw some polls that saw he would benefit by saying he's against Netanyahu. But I don't see any reason to believe that, that he's not going to uh, fall into the same trap that many such as Moshe Kahlon or, or Benny Gantz did before him. Okay. I mean, I don't think it's fair to call all of uh, Saar's list kind of senior appointments in the government. I mean, there are a lot of them were backbenchers. Well, with I'm, happy, and, uh, I'm happy to talk about what positions they had. I mean, I, I, I think that, that Hendel being the communications minister, Yvette sure. Sasabiton being the, the chairwoman of the Corona Committee. Okay. Again, Svika Hauser being the chairman of the Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, Look, you know, we can't talk about his list being backbenchers. You're right. Number 10, Hila Shai Vajan, um, she was a backbencher. And that's why she's number 10 when the ministers and committee chairman are further up on, on his list. But uh, I like Hila. She's great. She was originally in Bayat UD. And, and then, of course, she was in Blue and White. And now she's in Gidon Sar's party. And I wish her a lot of luck, like a lot of the other people in his party, that, that have been in two or three different parties over the last year or two. And, and if people really believe them that this time they're not going to sit with Bibi and they're not going to jump ship and they're not going to jump to another party, that, then that's fine. And that's up to the voter to, to, to decide if they believe that. Okay. So for, for, for our audience that, uh, that haven't read uh, Naftali Bennett's book, can you just briefly outline what kind of what he proposes that is so different from the current government to deal with both the, uh, the health and economic crisis? Sure. The, the main thing that is different is as opposed to it's a 180 degree uh, change in philosophy. Instead of going ahead and, and closing off the red cities, what he wants to do is close off the green cities. What you want to do when, you know, and he gives the analogy, which uh, I'm sure a lot of us uh, remember when you're cleaning for Pesach or you're doing your, your spring cleaning, you first clean a room. Once you know that is clean, you move on to the next room and you know not to bring food you know, into the rooms that are clean. But what he's saying is it's not going to work to go ahead and close off the red cities and expect things to actually happen and to defeat it. You want to take an area, you want to clean it of the coronavirus. How do you do that? We have the capacity right now, we're not doing this, we have the capacity now to do 2 million corona tests a day. You want to take an area, you want to give the municipality an ability to be able to do massive testing within their area. Anyone who is tested positive should be removed or put in isolation. But when they're removed, you don't put them in, in the uh, Gantz motels in terms of, you know, the crazy stories we're hearing. You know, when Naftali Bennett created the idea of putting um, Corona patients in hotels, he put them in five star hotels. That was the Bennett Hotel program back in the first wave compared to the cost saving measure of just throwing them in a bunch of motels in which there's an incentive for people to try to loophole and jump around the program. So the idea again, in short, is to take the area that is green and to clean it from Corona, isolate who you need to until you're able to clean the area. People from red areas will not be able to enter the green areas. This is a lot easier than preventing uh, green area people from going into red areas and then returning to green areas. It, it, it's just a lot more simpler on the ground to be able to 
enforce this type of situation. And then you have a competition between all of the municipalities because everyone is going to want to get green first, right? Any city that's green is going to be able to have everything open up, all of the, all of, you know, down to the tourism, every aspect within their economy and within their school system and everything will be open. There will be a lot of people fighting to be the first cities to do so. And in the areas such as B'nai Brock or elsewhere, which have constantly been red, the citizens of, of these cities are going to see how next door in Ramat Gan or in Giva Time, what an amazing life there is. And pretty soon they're going to realize it's in their um, actual, you know, there's an incentive and it's actual good, there's an actual good thing that might come out of them taking this situation more seriously, if not anything, to be able to just be able to go ahead and get out of it. So, so that's just in a nutshell, um, you know, from the macro level, there's of course a lot of micro aspects, but then there's the economic aspect. We need to remember that we're dealing with an 18% unemployment rate. You know, we had 3% before the but before Corona hit, we're, we're up at 18%. What we've done is we've seen that even when a lot of people go back to work, there's going to be a situation where there are 400,000 jobs that were lost, that we cannot see a situation in which people are going to immediately be able to go back to these areas. And that's why we have a plan to be able to create 400,000 new jobs. And again, we're capitalists, we're not socialists. We're not talking about doing this through the public sector. We're talking about doing this through the private sector. We're talking about helping in terms of lowering regulations and, and making a, a more streamlined process. People who, who live in Israel know, uh, you know, I'm also a former business owner. <laughs> it is very difficult to be able to navigate the Israeli bureaucracy. What we want to do is make it a lot easier, be able to create a situation where we create 400,000 new jobs, and this will be able to allow um, Israel, both from a health perspective, but also from an economic perspective, get out of this situation. And once we're done with all that and everything is, is you know, dandy again, then we can get back to fighting about the stuff that we're used to. So, so talking to, thank you for that. That was very, very interesting. Um, talking about fighting of the things that were kind of a more conventional uh, Israeli, Israeli politics. Um, where do you think we stand at the moment with the idea of the, the application of sovereignty or as some people are calling annexation of parts of the West Bank? How do you rate those chances to, uh, to, uh, um, to, to advance with, with, with those plans, especially under a Biden uh, presidency? Uh, you know, like I said, that this is something, you, you know, Biden administration aside, internally, when it comes to the Israeli agenda, I, I think we need to realize that what matters the most is not the Palestinian question and, and not a lot of these other issues that we've been talking about election after election. We need to get Israel to work again. We need to get healthy and we need to get to work again. You know, and we can't do that when we're in the current situation that we're in. When it comes to sovereignty and the Biden administration, I don't think it's a secret that they oppose it. <laughs> I don't think uh, I'm going to surprise anyone with with with, uh, with that answer. Um, of course, that's something that that we have, you know, that we have and we still do support. But you have to be able to to be connected to reality, and you have to know what you can advance and what you can advance. And I think that the special relationship that we have with the United States will continue, regardless of who is gonna be the prime minister of Israel. I'll tell you that definitely, you know, Naftali is someone who his parents were born in San Francisco, of course, and he, he grew up in an Anglo home. Of course, you have someone like me and others uh, 
that, that are, you know, um, either Anglo or, or myself, you know, who was born in Chicago. So you have a lot of people who could definitely work and have connections, um, even let's say personal before they had professional connections with various elements within the uh, Biden administration. So there, there is things that we're going to be able to advance. I don't expect that sovereignty will be one of them. Uh, but don't tell that to Smotrich because his entire campaign is that he's going to somehow bring sovereignty, even with Biden and the EU and the UN. And uh, I don't know, maybe you can interview someone from his party, can explain exactly how he's going to accomplish that. So let me ask you something else. The campaign at the moment that the Yemen are running kind of describes or frames your leader, Naftali Bennett, as a different type of leader. What do you, could you could tell us a little bit more details? What do you mean by that? Yeah, for sure. Look, he he's just a leader. He, he's a person who in the army, right? He went down, you know, from, you know, from private, he went all the way up uh, to, to being, you know, uh, the, the commander of, of, Magma, uh, of Maglan. Of course, he was in Sayeret Matkal, which is uh, the reconnaissance unit, the, the most elite of all IDF units. He, he started from scratch and he just built himself up by, by leading. And it was by leading by example and also not being afraid to, to put his, his nose in, uh, in the dirt when needed in order to go ahead and push forward and get the job done. He did the same thing in high tech where you know, he started a company you know, as a CEO and, and you start with just a few people and then you grow it to you know, a few dozen, then a few hundred and then a few thousand. He's, he's already made a number of exits as we like to say here in Israel, being able to, to sell um, you know, multiple companies that he was either CEO of or portfolio holder of, and he was very successful. And again, this is a guy who, he is so rich, okay? He does not need any of this, but he does this because he cares about the Israeli people. This is a person who's been a leader in everything. Look, when he started in politics, not like Yair Lapid who started, you know, as the head of his own party and already, you know, jumped in with 19 seats. Naftali Bennett, despite, again, being a guy who is very well financially, and a person who, who served in, in the most elite of IDF units and was a commander and so on and so forth, he started as an assistant politically, no different than I did, okay? And he worked himself up to be the leader of a party and then defense minister and now a prime minister candidate. I think a lot of people really connect to that. Someone who, who is just a born leader, who's willing to go ahead and go up and do a bunch of things and show success in everything that he's done. Gidon Sar is a great lawyer, He's been a great MK and, you know, that's awesome. What has he done other than being a lawyer? Lapid was a great journalist. He wrote a nice column. I like to read it every week. But, but again, what else has he done? We're in a situation where, again, we're having this interview by, by Zoom, okay, because of COVID. We, we need a real leader to get us out of here. We need someone with you know, actual experience, someone who's balanced a budget, someone who's, you know, dealt with payrolls, someone who, who actually has some sort of experience that is outside the small, narrow um, level of, of being just, you know, a politician. And again, within the time period of being a politician, I think it's safe to say that being defense minister is more impressive than uh, the other portfolios that the other contenders have had. Interesting that you, you mentioned in, uh, within, within uh, Naftali Bennett's bio that he started off as a political advisor, famously working in, in uh, Bibi Netanyahu's uh, uh, campaign team. How would you describe relations between the, uh, the two men at the moment? Um, there's no contact. 
and how no. would you uh, if, to elaborate on kind of their their when they were talking or when there was engagement? How would Look, you describe uh, their, when, their relationship? When when Bennett was defense minister, it, it's no it's no secret that Netanyahu opposed a lot of the things that Bennett tried to do. The the idea of the Corona hotels, um, Netanyahu was against it. The idea of rapid testing, Netanyahu was against it. Um, Bennett was pushing uh, face masks before Netanyahu got on board on that. Um, one of the things that Naftali did, and I really, I don't know anyone else who did this, he, he would just, you, you know, again, I know this is someone who's worked by his side, he would just stay in the office, he, he would go to sleep. I remember he, he had like interviews two days after each other, and I noticed that he was still wearing the same shirt. He had to go down to the car, you know, to, to switch it before the next interview. He even, you know, the, I remember there was a Shabbat where he just stayed in the defense ministry because he's like, we're at war. There are people dying. I can't go home. You know, he didn't have time to shower and put on a clean pair of clothes. He was defense minister of the state of Israel in the middle of this corona crisis, and he felt that it was his job to go ahead and deal with it. Netanyahu, you know, he's been busy with other aspects. He's been doing some other things. And uh, unfortunately, like I said, he did uh, try to oppose a lot of the things that Bennett brought up. Look, everything that, that, that ended up in the book and stuff that the government is, is now implementing now, back in March, 11 months ago, these are all things that were in the plan when he was still defense minister, that the Naftali Bennett put pen to paper. And he did this because what was he doing when he was working and spending those you know, late nights? There are different time zones. He was talking to people in the States. He was talking to people in Asia. He was talking to as many experts as possible because he was not someone who knew anything about this subject before. He had to become an expert instantly. And he was able by learning and talking and understanding, also talking to counterparts, if it's in Europe or elsewhere, what the other models are, what are what's working, what's not working. He read a lot of scientific papers. You, you know, all of these things that he came up with, these weren't ideas that he thought are great ideas. It's just, he has a very, very good analytical mind. He's a great strategist. He got all the information, he read all the material, he saw what worked and he saw what didn't work and he proposed real things. And really, you know, you know candidate aside, when I'm looking at the other candidates, I'm asking, why are you guys so reactive? Why can't you be on the initiative like Naftali is? You know, I would love if it was like the UK, right, where everyone had their, their manifesto, their platform, and we could all talk about how, how we all want to deal with, with COVID in one way or another. The other parties are not saying what their plan is. They're saying it's complicated. It's changing. We don't really know. I understand all of that. I understand the fear of being wrong of, you know, politicians hate being wrong or, or called on doing the wrong thing. But, but seriously, when the prime minister goes ahead and, and he opens up uh, the airport, unlike any of the other countries, with, uh, in, in terms of having people come in without doing testing before they came in or saying that you should do isolation but not dealing with certain you know, safeguards such as people hopping on the train before they go home to, to, to isolate for 14 days. Like there were just so many aspects that, that were just, just make a plan, don't be reactive, don't wait for problems to happen. You know, there are over 190 countries 
look, see what other people are doing, see what's working, see what's not, adopt the best things here. You know, the vaccine is a great thing. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like we'll probably have to do it, you know, once a year because of mutations sim similar to the flu shot. But there are plenty of countries that are not in a rush to vaccinate their entire population because they were smart enough to do testing at the airport before people flew in. <laughs> you know, why? I couldn't understand it when we were in lockdown, but people could just fly into the country without getting a corona test. It's not like we didn't say this stuff in the TV studios. We did. The government heard us. They just didn't do anything until it was too late. Okay, I've got one, one last question, if I may. If we fast forward uh, three or four weeks to just before the election, as has happened before, the, the Likud party launches what's referred to here as the, the Gewalt campaign, kind of the, the, the panic stations that kind of appeals to all right-wing voters that, the, uh, that the, uh, the, the kingdom is at risk and that everyone must kind of re return to the, to the mothership of Likud. And, and unfortunately for, for, for your party's sake, that's often led to a draining of your votes and kind of a resurgence of the Likud. How concerned are you that similar thing will happen this time around? So the difference between this time and all the previous times is until now, Bennett has thought that Netanyahu should be prime minister. And it'd be very difficult in the last days to explain why you should vote for Bennett when we're going to nominate Netanyahu and we want him to be prime minister and we want to go in his coalition. For Netanyahu now to go to our voters and say, you have to vote for me or else I won't be prime minister, the answer of the voters will be, yeah, we're voting for Naftali because we want him to be prime minister, not you. So I do expect that he's going to try that, but not towards us. He's going to try that towards Smotrich. Um, I also expect that Lapid is going to do that to Merits and Labor and, and Benny Gantz, who's also uh, about to fall under the threshold. And in some polls, he does fall under. Um, th that's what I do expect. But, but I think it's going to be very, very difficult to see really um, any of the four prime minister candidates lose support. I think, if anything, it's a question of when people leave the smaller parties, and consistently, the, the, the four parties running for prime minister are the only four that have been in double digits. Every once in a while, joint list might get 10, but for the most part, they're in single digits as well. I think a majority of Israelis are, are going to decide against the small parties, and they're going to make their decision between the four big guys. Now, how is that going to end up? We'll, we'll only know at the end of the election. But like I said, what makes us different compared to everybody else is that we're actually honest enough to say we are going to do what's best for Israel, of course, as we see it, but we're going to wait to see what the election results are and what happens in the recommendations phase. Because right now it is not clear by any means what the election results are going to be. And if we go and we believe any of the polls after, you know, four elections and plenty of times of them getting it wrong, um, I think it's safe to say that the best thing we can do is for everyone to vote for the prime minister candidate that they feel represents their values best, that has the best vision for what happens to Israel. Again, for, for me personally, whether you like the plan or not, I think it's nice to vote for someone who actually has a plan. Um, I think that's a good thing. Um, I get it, it's complicated, but, but take a risk, make a plan. Have people choose not as a popularity contest. This isn't a vote for class president, guys, okay? It's not about who has the best hair. We are, we are having this interview on Zoom, <laughs> okay? You know, the, supposedly the lockdown is over, but no one can go to work. 
you know, I, I don't I don't understand why that's not considered a lockdown. It's like they're they're changing the definition of the words. You, you know, if I'll just say one last thing on the R. Over the last number of months, we've talked about if the R is one or, or minus or whatever it is, but they keep changing the parameters of what that is. One day it's it's the um, total amount. Another day it's the percentage. One day it's it's a single amount. Then another day it's a three day rolling average, and then it's a seven day rolling average. And one day it's the overall amount of patients, and another day it's only the serious amount of patients. And then they'll add additional parameters of hospital beds or, or whatever it is, guys. I've seen every single one of these Netanyahu lockdowns in the second, third, and potentially fourth. There is one reason of why we went into a lockdown, and then there's a second reason of why we left the lockdown. So, so people aren't even sure why we were in a lockdown because they change the parameters and they change the reasoning as we go along. And I really believe we will have a lot more people following the regulations if they trust the leaders that are in place and they actually believe that there's a process. If you're able to tell people before lockdown, listen guys, this is why we're doing it ahead of time. These are the parameters in terms of when we will get out. I just love those, you know, those Corona cabinet meetings where they would talk about what the numbers need to be before we can get out. Isn't that something you should have known before we went in? You know, and we would have these situations where like, you know, we, we got out of the second lockdown and we ended up at, at that point with more uh, positive cases than we did when we, when we went into the first lockdown originally. Like the, you need to be able to have a plan. You have to know what it is that you're doing. So I would say for people who wanna go ahead and see Israel be managed again by a real leader with plans on the table that they should go ahead and vote for Yamina so that Naftali Bennett can form the next government. Jeremy, thank you very much indeed for a fascinating, uh, fascinating talk and insight into your party. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Richard.